Welcome to episode 145. Today, we visit with former Denver South High School principal, Jen Hansen, to learn about how she and her team change the trajectory for newcomers and students labeled as long-term English learners. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. How does a school? with mostly language learners and a large population of refugee students come to receive a Gold School of Opportunity Award presented by the National Education Policy Center. The answer in part is school leadership. In this conversation, Beth Skelton and I co-host a conversation with Jen Hansen to tease out her approaches and systems that provide an equitable education for long-term English learners. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so thrilled to have Jen Hansen speak to us today about her work at Denver South High School. I got to meet Jen personally for the first time at the 2018 WIDA conference when I was in a session all about how to set up programs for um, long-term English learners as well as all multilingual learners in general. And one of the speakers talked about newcomer programming and I raised my hand and I said, there's a fabulous new book out from Helen Thorpe called The Newcomers. And it's all about Denver South High School. And I, I was sharing about this book and, and another hand went up in the audience and it was Jen Hansen who said, well, actually I'm the principal of that high school. Um, and so I was blown away because I knew the name of her from the reading the book and I went, oh, you're Jen Hansen. So I was pretty excited to meet her in the flesh, in the conference, and since then have been connected with her um, through various connections along the way. So Jen, thank you. Thank you for spending time with us today. No, oh, it's my honor and pleasure. So thank you to you both. Um, Jen, when you were the principal at Denver South High School, um, it received an award as a world-class gold school of opportunity, um, and that was in 2017. Could you tell us a little bit about that award and why South High School was awarded it? Yes. So the School of Opportunity Project is through the National Education Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and they partner with various organizations and universities across the country. In Colorado, they partner with CU Boulder. And their mission is to lift up exemplar high schools that can encompass community outreach, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and language assets in their, their students and want to award high schools and recognize them for more than just test scores. So um, South was awarded uh, the gold 
standard, which means out of their 10 indicators, a, a gold level school reaches eight of those indicators. And we were very fortunate to have a What's that sound? Sorry. Do you hear that tapping sound? That's my dog. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, he's scratching. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Uh, I can start again if you want. Sure. If it continues to, uh, to like, I was like, oh, I, I thought it was like kids like walking down the stairs. I'm like, oh, you have a village walking down the stairs. But, and then like I kept on continuing. I was like, what is going on? I'm so sorry. It's okay. Yeah, so where, where do we stop at? We stopped at, yeah, now that he stopped scratching. Um, if he does that again, we're going to have to have him like, leave. yeah, I'll have him exit stage right, <laughs> stage right. for sure. I'm so, sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, do you want to do that again? Yeah, no worries. Okay. Why the award? So just start with the award. Okay, perfect. So the School of Opportunity is a partnership with the National Education Policy Center in Washington, DC, and they partner with organizations and especially universities across the country. In Colorado, they work with CU Boulder, and their mission is to lift up exemplar high schools across the country that really encompass community outreach, um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and asset-based views of their, their language, linguistically diverse families and students. Um, a gold level for the School of Opportunity means that a school reached eight out of 10, there's 10 indicators total, and a gold level school has to reach at least eight of them. And we were very fortunate to have a community effort to submit for this award, and we were visited and uh, lucky enough to have students present and talk about the culture and community. We had parents present, teachers present. And it's a really a holistic look at how the school is, is making change for their students. Congratulations. It's really, really great. You know, Denver South High School um, gained a lot of fame when Helen Thorpe, the author, wrote the book, The Newcomers. And, uh, you know, book was really well received. And she observed in your newcomer classroom for a whole year. Um, how does the educational programming then and, and things that you've offered, how does that differ at Denver South or under your leadership for newcomers and then students that have gained more language proficiency? How, tell us a little bit about those programming differences. Absolutely. South has a whole comprehensive scope of linguistic programming. And what it allows for is the language level of the student and the age of the student. And South is fortunate enough to welcome students at, at many different age, I mean, high school ages, but also many different language levels. So sometimes a new student will arrive and they are 17 and they have never been in school. So they will be placed within the newcomer programming for up to a semester to a year. Sometimes a student will arrive and they are 16 and they may have an intermediate level of English. And so what South offers is a scope based on that age and linguistic ability that leads a, a student to graduation. So for a, an intermediate or advanced student, we talk, to, we talk to them and we talk to their families and say, what are your post-secondary goals? What do you want to do? Do you want to do two-year, four-year work, military? And here are the courses that you will need to take, not only for state and district graduation requirements, but the courses that are available to you as an intermediate or advanced student. 
Our goal was to make sure that every student in the school had access to an advanced level course if they wanted to take advantage of that opportunity. So we, we did a lot of <laughs> um, training and messaging and reworking the master schedule and making sure that every student had access to that. So there was very much differentiated by the language level, the students' needs and wants, and their age and their trajectory toward post-secondary success. Oh, it's amazing what you are able to offer all students. Um, really from beginning level all the way up to advanced levels of proficiency. You mentioned that you did a lot of professional learning um, to support teachers, because I'm imagining that your chemistry teacher or your, um, you know, your math teachers, that they may have needed some additional support with how to work with students that are at different levels of language acquisition in their content classes. Could you describe a little bit about what kind of professional learning you offered? Absolutely. It was ongoing and consistent, um, as all good professional learning should be. <laughs> um, it also, Denver as a district offers a base level training, and it's actually required for all teachers so that teachers can understand language acquisition and different levels of content and language and how they intersect. In addition to that, at South, there were really two things that we focused on, and one was mindset. And so a social justice and equity mindset that our students come to us with strategy, with language, with intelligence, with brilliance, with ability. So that's one. And then the second one is the pedagogy that follows that. So how can we, what can we do in a chemistry class, right? Every student needs to take biology <laughs> to graduate. What language and content do we need to explicitly teach so that all students can have access to that content. It was, it was understood that if you worked at South and there are about 90 teachers at South, if you worked at South, you taught language learners and it was a good thing and you wanted to do that and you were excited. And so in our interview process and in our training process and in our ongoing training, that was the message. And so teachers, actually we had a, a cadre of advanced placement teachers that actually helped us get this initiative going. And they said, we, we want our students to take these courses. And yes, it is a lift. And yes, we have to change our teaching. And yes, we have to learn. But really, the majority of the staff wanted to do that. And I think because we really rested in the mindset and then the pedagogy, and it was consistently there, it was, it was possible. So you just talked about um, your the demographics a little bit. Can you talk to us more about the demographics of South High School when you were working there? Absolutely. So South is the second largest school in Denver. So it, it had anywhere from 1,600 to 2,000 kids when I was there. Um, it is 73% students of color. About 42% of those students are active multilingual learners, usually in levels one to three. And then about 75% of the school are students who identify as free and reduced lunch. Additionally, about 22% of the students are identified as having learning differences. Um, what is so powerful about the demographic makeup of South is that there is not one dominant group. 
Um, there is an incredible mix that we always said we're from across the street and around the world because we had local neighborhood students who most of the time were white English speaking Americans. And we had 70 different languages from students all over the world and all over the city. And many students came and they, they actually would ride a bus across the city because they wanted to be part of a diverse community. As a teacher working in international schools, sometimes I hear about my colleagues in America and Canada and they, they describe their schools. And I'm like, oh, you're at an international school in America or Canada. You just don't really realize it. Right, exactly. You talked about um, your time there. Would you paint for us a picture of a story? Would you share with us a story um, that has really informed your practice during that time? Absolutely. I think um, the students at South are magical <laughs> in that they have so much belief in the culture of the school and the school and in each other. And I think the one of the most powerful moments was how the students came together in 2016 um, after the presidential election. It was a very um, somewhat traumatic and, and unknown time for many of our families. And the way that our students supported one another and reached out to one another and reached out to families was really inspiring. And no adult asked them to do that. <laughs> so you had, you had students from all different walks of life reaching you know, toward each other in class and saying, I've got you. And they created a mural in the hall and it was in 14 different languages. <laughs> and it was, it was just really powerful. And that is the spirit of South. And that has been there for a long time. And it's because of the students. And so that, that, that anchor to what is possible and what can happen and the, the kindness and the acceptance that lived there is what I hold in my heart. Sometimes the best things, like we, as a teacher, I love my job, but I love it the most when I see kids showing humanity. Yes. Right? And they're, they're yep. showing me like, oh, you're actually really good kids. You're really good people. And you're reminding me what good people are like. So yes. Thank you for that. Yes. If you could continue to tell stories like that, that's really great as you continue with Beth's questions. Like those things really ground in the visual. Like I could see the 14 words and 14, um, yeah. Languages on the mural. I was like, yes. So yeah, absolutely. I'll let Beth continue. Oh no, I it was a similar kind of follow-up with that. This is this community that you developed. I know when I read about Denver South's success in a Washington Post article, you talked about the percentage, like 80% of the students who are coming from all across Denver and across the street. Um, 80% of them are involved in some kind of extracurricular activity. And that must create a community as well, I can imagine. How did you make that happen as the leader of the school? Because there's so many barriers to after-school activities from, you know, transportation to funding to, um, you know, students having to work or have extra after-school um, family obligations. So how did you make that work for 80% of your student body? Absolutely. That I want to give uh, tribute that to our student leadership 
And there was a student leadership team of students of about 20 students, and they were a cross section of the school. And they were responsible for messaging that to parents and families, recruiting kids, going to kids' houses, going to apartment complexes, telling them about it. And because the students saw themselves in those student leaders, it was so powerful. And it was, you know, we had 24 different athletic opportunities and about 50 different clubs. And those were sponsored by community organizations, by students, by teachers. Um, we also had, if a student was given free and reduced lunch, they did not have to pay athletic fees. We absorbed that in our budget. We also paid for over 300 bus passes for students to ride the, the regional transit system in Denver to school. Um, we also did our, our we had paras, our paraprofessionals were 14 amazing humans who translated in our top 14 languages. And they are the heroes and heroines and would help explain what, what swimming is, right? <laughs> so, you know, or what, I mean, what is golf? What is, what is this model UN club? What, you know, what is theater? What is, because that's such an American thing. Um, and so we wanted that inclusivity. Another group of students that helped that, um, they called themselves the Rising Rebels, and they were paired with, if a student was due to the school, they made sure to be paired with a buddy who could show them lunch and take them to an activity and take them to a game and take them to International Day. And, and if the student was did not yet speak English, we made sure that we had a, a pair who spoke their language. And so there was, and the students did that. And so the, the student agency and empowerment that, and, and that starts with that mindset, what you bring is an asset. And so that, that was how we did that. And it, you know, I had an amazing, amazing coaches. If you're, if you're a coach, like at South, you're going to have kids who have been running their whole lives. And then you're gonna have kids who've never worn shoes, really. And they're both gonna be on the track team. <laughs> so it's, the, I you know give a lot of tribute to the teachers and coaches and for their open-mindedness and willingness to, again, see that as, a, as an asset. It's just, it's beautiful. We're, we're totally visualizing these students working together. And as we know, these extra, Curriculars are a place where students learn, you know, not only language, but also they, they connect with each other. Um, can you think of somebody that like really shown um, outside of school, like outside of academics, where that was a place that this student grew and that you, you can think of somebody like I got this story of how the extracurricular did it for this student? Yes, I have two sisters in my mind um, and they're from Ethiopia and um, <laughs> they are two of the most beautiful girls. Um, <laughs> they came here when uh, the oldest, the eldest was in seventh grade and the youngest was in fourth. And they started in, in similar newcomer programs in, in a different school. Um, when they came to South, what, what you see is that students have to all of a sudden bridge two worlds, right? They're, they're from, I mean, they were born in Ethiopia. They were refugees. 
They are, they can speak two other languages besides English. And they also want to figure out how to navigate the American school system. And these two sisters who are actually both at CU and have, have had an amazing experience there. Um, not only were one of them was the student body, one of the student body leadership presidents, another one ran the dance club. They helped with International Day. They welcomed new students who spoke Tigrinya or Amharic. They organized a post-secondary success fair for students going to college. And, and there were many students like that. I mean, I could tell you story after story of, of students who did that. And they, I am, I am so proud of them. And whenever I think about my own growing up, <laughs> I think one, I've not overcome anything <laughs> because the strength and tenacity that these students demonstrate and live with and thrive on and show us, show me as, as an adult is amazing. So, so many students like that. The, the student who is on the cover of the newcomer book um, is a beautiful human. I actually have a picture that she painted for me in my room. Um, she has also been a successful international business uh, major at CU. Awesome. These are amazing stories of so many newcomers that, you know, not only graduated, but went on with all kinds of opportunities that you opened so many doors there for them at Denver South. Um, there's a group of language learners that I know you also supported, but that in the United States, at least this classification of long-term English learners, so not newcomers, and many of them actually born in the United States. Um, did you have a population of those students that were still classified as English learners, but were not necessarily coming in from other countries, but spoke other languages perhaps at home, but had been in the system for, you know, since kindergarten perhaps? Did you have those students as well at your school? Yes, absolutely. We had about 350 of them. <laughs> So yes, yes. Wow. Tell it, you know, they, they have such, there's, there's a lot of terms used around these students and adjectives to describe them that are not necessarily asset-based. Um, how did you support those students and, and also give them these opportunities and chances to thrive? Was there anything different um, for students in this category of long-term English learner? Yes. So the first, uh, I think the, the, one, the most important piece is communication. And by that, I mean, there are so many students who have been classified as a language learner their whole life, and they don't know why, and neither do their parents. Um, and their parents have not had access to a system. They may or may not speak, read, or write English. They may or may not even know how to maneuver the, the system. And so the first, um, there's a, a student I can and I, I'm, I'm hesitant to use first names, but I, I don't know, I can change first names. I don't know. Um, okay. His name was Manuel. And he, um, when I, when I became principal, he poked his head in my office and I had never met him. And he said, are you going to make me take those English classes? And I said, well, uh, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> I'm Miss Hansen. Let's like, come in and talk to me. Tell me what you mean. I knew what he meant because I've, I've had that conversation with hundreds of students my whole career, as many of us have. And he said, I just, I don't understand why I still have to take these English classes. I hate this and I don't learn anything. And I said, 
I completely hear you. And here's what we're going to do. He was born in the United States and he was complete. He was orally fluent in Spanish. He never learned how to read or write in Spanish. Um, and he was as most students in the United States are, he had been in intervention and lower level courses, his whole school experience. He had been kept out of electives. He had been tested for special education unnecessarily. <laughs> so this is the story of sadly thousands of kids across the United States. So what we did is the first thing we did was talk to the students and families and help them understand the system. We brought in translation, we brought in immigration lawyers, we brought in the people in, within Denver who, and helped understand that there is a national compliance system in place and it was set up with good intention, right? But unfortunately it's, it's failed. What happened that first year is that 350 of those students had to take the access test, which is Colorado's yearly assessment for language learners. They had been taking a test similar to that test since they were about five and they're now, you know, 14 and 15 year olds. They hate the test. They don't know what the test is for and they don't take it seriously. So we had, we set goals. We talked, we gave them, we gave them tickets for milkshakes in the cafeteria. We, we said, come and do your best on this test. And this was again, after this meeting with families and students and 200 of them exited that year. And so that, that understanding of the system is huge. Then the second part we did was what I mentioned earlier with our master schedule is, okay, if you didn't exit, but you're a junior and you've only taken ELD and ELD is amazing and necessary. However, for a student who was born in the United States and an upper level of English proficiency, they need to take an upper level English course to graduate. They will be behind in credit. They will never have access to post-secondary choices because they have not had the rigor given to them that they deserve and that they can thrive in. So students took upper level, if not at least, you know, mainstream level courses. They're open to everyone. Our AP numbers went from, as you read in the article, went from <laughs> not a lot, <laughs> 73 in the first year to 595 by the third year with a pass rate of 85% passing with a B or above. And so that, and I can't stress enough that programming is, is crucial, but mindset is even more crucial. And so your, your, your structures, your master schedule is your equity tool and your mindset of, I'm not going to love you out of your education. I care about you enough to hold you to higher standards. Everybody wants that. I want that. <laughs> Kids want that too. I, I mean, I'm just so impressed that how did you get all these kids, like 300 kids, and then they exited? Was that a programmatic thing? Like what shifted from 300 kids to the enrollment of 500 kids to AP classes? It, it was programmatic, but it was also, it, it was almost like we're sitting, our system unfortunately sits on these students, meaning that 
we, we just, we just reclassify every year and we say, okay, well, I'm sorry, you only got a four on, on the access test and you need a five. And if a student, similar to what you're naming in your book, if a student has been in that system for five to six years, their chances of graduating are less and less and less. And so that, that communication, recruitment, student recruitment, I mean, it was, like I told you, our students would talk and they would say, hey, I'm, I know, I understand you. I've been in your shoes. I'm in AP Geo, AP World, AP Calc, AP Science, and I'm doing great. And here's what you can do. And here's the class you should take. And it, it, it took, I mean, it took a long time, but it really didn't because the students want that. I think that any student, any human needs to see a path forward. And if you were born here, your language, and if your language at home was not seen as an asset, and then you're put in remedial classes for 10 years, what kind of path forward is that? So we tried to, with, with the students and families, make a path. So is it the clarity of, so it, I'm just summarizing. Students didn't really take the test seriously before. Correct. So that's why Correct. they were always like a three out of four, they never exited. Yep. But then you, re you like changed the narrative around the tests and you said, mm -hmm. this, is a, this is something you have to get past to be able to take AP courses. And then they took that seriously. Is that how it happened? That is, I mean, that's part of it, right? It was also, you know, you, this is, this test is unfortunately a, a barrier, right? It was set up to help multilingual learners, right? With Lau versus Nichols and all the other corresponding federal laws and cases, but it, it's unfortunately a barrier right now. And so the students who potentially didn't pass it, we still let them not, I don't want to say let them, but encourage them to have access to courses. If you, if you have been in a program for five years and you're a four, you, not that a student is only a number, but you can, you can take an AP course, you will thrive and it, it's possible. And so that was that messaging kids really loved that. And so did parents. So they could be classified as long-term English learners, but yes. still enroll in AP courses. Absolutely. And then slowly through working in AP courses, they develop their language skills and then they exit it. Yep. <laughs> yes. Jen, this is, is so brilliant. And, and what you're describing is the equity piece is like, we're not going to hold you back from these courses that are the more exciting, the more dynamic. That's where the content is. That's where they get what they want for life choices. Um, and, and we're going to make sure that language is not a barrier and that we're going to support the language. Talk to us about these AP teachers. You mentioned that they actually were the ones that were advocating for getting learners like um, these students in their classes, and they knew they could make those students successful. Um, how, what kind of training came with that? Because I know from my own experience with advanced placement and then in the international baccalaureate system that many international teachers who are listening to this podcast come from, that, that we have this sense of, oh, if you don't have a certain level of language that you won't be successful because on the AP test, you have to X. And so therefore I'm going to teach the whole course like the end, right? Like that final test. How did you or the, the training that you provided help AP teachers see when 
Affolding is appropriate to get them there eventually independently. Could you talk to us a little bit about that and, and some of the training or specifics around um, the supports that were offered? Absolutely. That So it's a, a couple of, of ways that that was approached. Um, one was they all had that base level training. And so we had a, a teacher leadership team of 25 teacher leaders that were responsible for giving PD as well as feedback and coaching. Those teachers were, were you know, expert teachers and leaders in the building. And so they would, would couple with all teachers to make sure that they felt like they had support. They had lab classrooms so other teachers could go in and watch their practice. It was also really important to make sure that that was, it was safe, right? It's, it, this is not a perfection game. It's going to take time. It's going to take practice, but just like I believe the students can do this, so can you. We actually um, paired with, you know, College Board, who runs the Advanced Placement Program in the United States, doesn't have a lot of scaffolding resources available. University of Metro Denver does, and they had an advanced placement summer training that was specifically talk about scaffolding, equity, and diversity through AP. So all of our teachers went to that. I think another thing that I want to name that happens in a lot of high schools is a lot of time. A lot of times, teachers teach the same thing for umpteen years. And your most skilled teachers get paired with your seniors or your most consistent classrooms. At South, everybody taught everything. Because what that does is that breaks down. So if you are in, if you are an English teacher, you could teach AP Lang, but you also might teach regular freshman English. You also might teach an ELD course. And so that breaks down some of that elitism that unintentionally happens, not only with AP classes, but the people who teach AP classes. So those AP teachers were the same teachers who understand and who had taught various levels in other courses, and they could bring that skill to advanced placement. So, and you know, they, it's, I credit them. They were, they worked together. They had planning together. They talked about, how did you adjust this activity? What did you do? And it, and it, was, it was providing enough scaffolding for the student to get there, but not watering down the content so that the student wouldn't be successful. So striking that balance takes a lot of finesse and expertise, but those were some of the ways we made that happen. Oh, it just, it's so exciting to hear what you were able to do um, as, as a leader at, at the school and whether it's after school activities or getting so many of your students involved in those advanced placement courses. You've mentioned some of the students that you've followed and that, you know, they're at university level now or they're working in international business. Um, is there a success story that you can share with us from some, somebody that went through this? They were like classified as a long-term English learner. There may be Manuel, if you remember the story of Manuel coming in, do I have to take that course again? Do you know what happened with him? And, and do you have that follow-up for us that we'd love to hear? Absolutely. I had the pleasure of, of giving Manuel his diploma. Um, and I had the pleasure of writing um, a letter 
to have him accepted to CSU. Um, and he took in his last two years in high school, he took as many upper level concurrent enrollment and advanced placement classes that he could. Um, he graduated with honors and he went to college and he, he is, he should have graduated by now. I don't know for sure, but I know, I mean, that is, you know, when you see students and you see that they believe they have a path, that is why we do this work. And as a high school principal, if we don't open doors to post-secondary choices, we're not doing our job. And that like Manuel is, Manuel is representative of thousands of students who just want that. And he was the first person in his family to graduate from high school in any country. And so it was, a, it was a beautiful moment. And I, I could tell you there's a, there's lots of students in, in that, in that vein. You know, you listened to him when he came in and he advocated for himself, but you had said this, the system sits on these students. Like it keeps them down in a lot of ways is what I heard you saying are there any policies, like you talked about your programming, like we get kids into advanced classes as soon as we can, we offer them the opportunity, we don't require them with a, a certain number on that English language proficiency test, they don't have to take a, you know, a certain English course. Are there other policies that, that enabled like to lift off of these students so that they could experience this kind of success and challenge um, that you can think of? I know you mentioned a few about programming, but what other kind of policies that we see in a lot of schools were you able to change there at Denver South? I think the, the entrance policies that many high schools have to follow, it meaning if you want to come here, you have to have this many credits if you're 17. Or if you have this and this on your transcript, you can't come here. Um, and I, that's not okay. <laughs> and many schools, any model, schools do that because there's such a pressure to perform and there is such a rigorous state standardized testing system that that is how teachers are promoted. That is how leaders are promoted. That is how we earn a bonus depending on the district we work in. So those entrance policies that they have to also lie in equity. If you want an education and you show up at my door, I am giving you an education, period. And I will believe in you and I will set you up with the courses that you need to get an education. That is my job. So I think there's unfortunately some entrance policies that are intentionally and unintentionally biased. I think from a state level, you know, states have a right to determine graduation credits and schools are graded on a four five or six year cohort of graduation. And, and I, I do think, I wish that there would be a, an acceptance of bilingualism within those credits and, you know, an, 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 a nod to the assets that language brings for a student. So for example, if you're fully fluent in another language, that should be celebrated. And, and you should be given credit for that, um, whether it's, you know, one year of world language or something um, to really celebrate the fact that, you know, many students at the South spoke four languages, not just two. <laughs> so that is, those are the two biggest, I think, on a policy level. I think the rest 
from a programmatic and, and structural place, uh, leaders have to understand how to maneuver their resources of time, talent, money, and through an equity lens to make that happen. Yeah, thanks for that. I work with a lot of different schools. And one of those policies that I see is that if you have a certain score, you must take that English language development course, which either takes away an elective, or it takes away an open period, or it um, blocks them from going into the higher English language arts class. And as you have seen, um, that doesn't necessarily have to be a barrier that students can succeed on that in the AP, even if they have a certain number on that uh, English language proficiency test, which may or may not um, tell the whole story of what their language is. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and I've seen the same thing in international baccalaureate programs that students that you know may have an English language development level, uh, proficiency level that you think there is no way. They just love economics and, and then they fly. Right. Um, so it's not necessarily predictive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one other statistic I wanna share that leads to that success is that 96% of students graduating in the time and I, and I think this has continued, but 96% of those students matriculated to a two or four year school. That's a, that's a, that's a high number. And that, that again, it's possible <laughs> and students deserve it. And that is sometimes the reason that a student will stay in school, that a reason a student will thrive in school. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, one of Tom's other guests on a previous podcast was Joe Napolitano, who wrote The School We Deserve, The Schools We Deserve, and really wrote about what you just talked about, how the policy in that district in Pennsylvania kept students out of a school that um, would provide the full spectrum of, of what the student wanted and, and a new student coming in. And um, yeah, so thank you for sharing all the things you did to remove barriers and to create equity for all the students, regardless of their language acquisition level. Um, Tom, go ahead if you had another. Yeah, so can I uh, loop back to that part where you talked about how you moved the most senior teachers away from AP and said, you're going to teach everything. I just love the fact that you did that um, because it said that all teachers, these students belong to all of us. And that that's, I think that like when you did that, that policy change or that scheduling change, you created a culture change. So I just want to applaud you for that. How did you do that? Because I'm sure teachers are like, mm -mm, you're gonna, not going to do that. You're not going to take my AP classes from me. Who do you think you is? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, not everyone was my biggest fan, um, but I will tell you that everyone knew why. And what that does is it not only shifts the culture, but it also shifts the equity among the teachers. And it, it, it topples that hierarchy. And that's important because if we're trying to disrupt hierarchies within our system, we have to disrupt them within our own context. And so it, it I, and because I had people who believed that, they could also convince their colleagues. So this wasn't just a Jen Hansen sitting in her office decreeing this. This was the collaborative work of the teacher leadership team, of some AP teachers, of from feedback from families who are really excited about their students being included. And so it, and you know, did everybody love it? 
No, but most did. And it, it's, it was crucial to the success. How did, so you had success at Central High, then how did that move to district-wide? That's a great question. So when we, the program that we piloted at South, um, thankfully was then shared with other high schools and shared from a master scheduling standpoint, a teacher training standpoint, a messaging and community standpoint. And our students actually went to talk to the district, <laughs> which was great. And so they presented these findings and other high schools replicated this and also had similar success. And I think that overall, Denver Public Schools has done a lot to really make sure that their classes are open and inclusive. I, I do wanna celebrate them for that. And um, I was so thrilled to see that because it, it just increases equity for students. Jen, there may be a lot of school leaders listening to this podcast. And what you just said is it's so empowering. You went from a pilot program at one school to really influencing the whole district and impacting so many students' lives. Um, how many years was it from when you started as principal until these, this kind of success, 96% of the students going on to post-secondary education, you know, having 575 of your students in these AP course, like amazing, right? Um, how many years was that? That was three. That was a three-year initiative. And so we, um, we started that with our leadership team when I started. Um, and that was a three-year initiative that we worked on and we the students knew that was initiative the students knew what our goals were the staff knew what our goals were um and it, it was a big lift but it you know there were there were you know there had been work before with some some pockets of ap teachers so it was just leveraging that but yeah it was a three-year initiative so that's a question not quest i was like typing it as you were typing in okay so walk us through those first three years. Like, Give us something very clear for leaders to do year one, year two, year three. Absolutely. So one thing that leaders never have the privilege of is time. And they, like everyone in education. Also, as leaders, we are, we are pulled into reactive situations. I want to give everyone the permission to, to level up and stay in the proactive space. And I know that's easy to say and hard to do, but that is your vision. And so if you're one, so you can say you're one, who are our kids? How are they succeeding right now? What do they need moving forward? That's when you start with the messaging and training. Year two, you have the recruitment, you have the teacher training, you start with the master schedule. And then year two into three is monitoring that success. Where do we see wins? What do we need to change? What additional training do we need? How do we need to further connect with community members and parents and students to make this a success? So it's you know systematic. You, you have to do that setup and that year one is really crucial because it's not only what we're going to do, but why we're going to do it. And you have to say that why until you feel like you're going you, you, all, that's all you say. That's all you say. You could say in your sleep, but that is the meaning. And that is, is how you strategically set it up. And you, all those pieces of the counselor training, teacher training, master schedule training, outreach to families, training of kids, messaging to kids, AP, I mean, all of that 
you strategically plan for. So year one, messaging and communication, recruitment, year two, master schedule, placement, year three, monitoring and implementation and tweaks. If so, year one is all about messaging. That's really important, like marketing, messaging mm -hmm. this, this change, yes. this shift in the culture. What do you, what would you say is the most important if or effective strategy that helped deliver this message? That uh, you can't have that message by yourself. It's a, it's a community message and it is developed and messaged collectively. And so having teachers own that message and, and help message that parents, students, um, and, and it, that is, that's paramount. It won't succeed if it's not a collective effort and message. So if it's a team effort, like which group did you go to first to say like, I need you on this team? Uh, the, the, so first my assistant principals, um, I had an, an eight person leadership team. And then um, second, our teacher leadership group, 25 teacher leaders. Um, and then we formed the students, the student group and said, what do you think? Like first, that question is really important. What do you think? <laughs> like, what do you want? And, and do you think this is a good idea? So that was, um, and then our students actually, it was amazing. Our students actually then presented it to our PTA, our Parent Teacher Association, and then they did different outreach. Um, our, our PTA was mostly run by American families, but they actually would provide bus passes for our refugee families to come to PTA or they would go visit them in, in their homes if, if the families felt comfortable um, so that all families could be part of that messaging and decision-making process. What did you do with parents that was most effective, do you think? I think the best and most rewarding part of parent and community engagement at South was we had a home visit program that every single ninth grader received a home visit. And they, they was, that was conducted by either a teacher, a parent, or a student, or a combination of both. Um, it was translated in their language if they needed. We made sure that they felt safe to have us in our home because that's also can be scary for some students or families, depending on their experiences. Um, we, we gave them South t-shirts, we gave them their schedule, we gave them a water bottle, we welcomed them. Um, and that was ongoing throughout the year. And so that connectivity, and, and that was a, a grant that we wrote. And so the people who conducted those home visits could, could be paid um, and we could afford those. But that was, I mean, to do that with an entire incoming class of 600 freshmen is a big effort. <laughs> but it was, it was really important. So listening to you describe year one, I really hear year three in your messaging. As you, you work backwards, just like planning for instruction, you plan, you plan backwards. You say at the end of the three year, we're gonna get this, but this, it first requires year one and we're mm -hmm. gonna message this. So it seemed like you had a message that you want. You had a vision to get there by year three. But you mm -hmm. and it started with the visioning here to get it and to sew it into all your stakeholder groups. So your your leadership team, your students, leaders, and then your parents. So thank Absolutely. you for sharing that. No, thank you. Oh, it's just it's so exciting to hear all the different pieces and parts. And I'm so glad we got into your um, community and family programming. Did you also partner with community? Um, 
organizations that extended what the school could do? What were some of those partnerships like? Yes, we had a South Partnership Council um, that was managed by an amazing family and community liaison um, with whom I worked. And that was 35 local businesses that supported outreach, fundraising, um, you know, events for the school, recruitment. Uh, it was pretty powerful. We also we also partnered extensively with Goodwill, um, which helped a lot of job placement for our students if they wanted to work after school. We also partnered with the refugee community agencies in the city, so African Community Center. Um, Lutheran Family Services, and we made sure that we that they knew that South was a welcoming place. Um, we also did home visits with them if if families were newly placed um, or newly arrived in the United States. So that that the community in a school is your anchor, and that outreach and network we could not have done all the things we did without that network. So with that community partnership, did you also have the opportunity, I know students got placed in jobs, was there also like an internship program or a way that students could get work credit, so actually a class but in the community, was that a possibility for some of these students? Yes, yes, students could have work study in their schedule where they could work. Um, as part of their school day and earn school credit as well as earn money. We also had career and tech ed programs where students would, for example, we had an engineering program. So students would take engineering courses at South, but then in their junior and senior year, they would partner and actually work in a, in a placement in an engineering firm and learn and actually graduate with credits. And so it was that's been a huge, wonderful initiative in the state of Colorado that many high schools have benefited from. And it's such an important program. The, those policies around how do we get graduation credit for some of these students that may be entering, you know, 16, 17 years old and not have quote unquote enough credits to graduate in three or four years. Mm -hmm. That's so powerful. And you mentioned another way that you were able to give credit if you could extend on that that if a student spoke another language fluently, you were able to give them world language credit or you somehow figured out how to use, get, give credit for that skill set. How did that work? Well, I wish we would do that statewide. How we did, how we did that itself and through within partnership with Denver was the seal of biliteracy. So the seal of biliteracy is in 17 states, um, scholarship, excuse me, in 17 states in the United States. And so if a student could demonstrate through a portfolio of work, their proficiency in another language, they got, a. I, I made the decision that is one benefit of being a principal. <laughs> I made a decision that they could have a credit for that. Um, and that is such an amazing way to value their home language. And, and we had students get the seal of biliteracy and seal of triliteracy. Um, so it was just, it was really powerful. We had 67 of our graduating seniors in 2017 got the seal of biliteracy. So it's a wonderful program. Oh, Jen, we have learned so much from you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your leadership expertise and, and just the amazing work that you did there at Denver South High School for the three years in that program was truly beneficial to so many. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I know Tan has a closure that he would like to ask you.
we're going to close with traffic light teaching. Uh, it's a red light. What would you ask teachers to stop doing in terms of working with newcomers or long-term English learners? Uh, what would you ask students to, teachers to keep doing? Uh, that's green light. And then the yellow light, uh, what should they start doing? Let me start over. Red light is something that you ask teachers to stop doing. Yellow light is to uh, keep on doing. And then green is start doing. Absolutely. I love this question. So I think what we unintentionally do is something I mentioned earlier and is we love kids out of an education. We say, oh my gosh, those poor students, they've been through so much. They can't possibly do X, Y, Z. That is unintentionally disenfranchising them even further and providing a barrier to what they are trying to change in their life. So stop loving kids out of an education. Start, and I'll skip to that was that was the red, I'll get to the yellow. The green is start loving students enough to hold them to high standards and give them opportunity. That could be as simple as in your classroom, if you've hesitated to present a text or an assignment, try it, try it. If in your mind, you say, I don't think my students could do that. Try it. They will always impress you. They will always go above and beyond. Always, always, always. So start doing that. Consider if you are a teacher who has never had training on extensive differentiation or language levels or has never taught an AP class, go do it because you're only gonna get better as a professional and you're only gonna hone your skills more and be able to reach more students. Well, I'll end with this. Um, I once told a principal, I said, listen, wherever you go, I would like to follow you as a, I'd like to work with you. And then she sent me an email. She said, I just want to let you know when you said that, I didn't say anything, but that's the best compliment you can give a principal. So I want to say that though I've never worked with you before, I would follow you in a heartbeat because of, you have vision, but you have systems to follow and make that vision possible. Thank you. That's a deep honor. So thank you so much. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I'm taking away from this conversation that anything is possible when everyone in the school believes a mission can be achieved. This is what Jen Hansen did. She reflected on the inequality that experienced multilinguals or long-term English learners face by being constantly enrolled in less rigorous courses and saw that they were prevented from enrolling in AP courses because of systems. She then set a vision for what it will look like in three years. Then Jen worked backwards from that vision. 
The first year was all about sharing what can be possible if we work together for long-term English learners. She worked with her leadership team, her student leaders, and the community members to have them join this March. So that's how change happens. It doesn't happen alone. Find those who can join your march, work with them to spread the message, and backwards plan from that vision. What's most important, though, is to have a vision that everyone wants to join in. Jen's vision for long-term English learners was that they would all have a pathway to career in college. Now that's a march worth joining. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your